came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Familia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Syrian, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men on Israel, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, narrator, Peter, crowd. Uh, I forgot to say before on, on the cathedral, when I walked in I was given an anonymous note which, which said this, in order to raise funds for the cathedral rebuild in line with traditional methods, there will be a stall after the service selling indulgences. You didn't know we were doing a bake sale, did you, Vic? Oh, sorry, that was anonymous, anonymous. Let me pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I'm even more aware than normal that uh, today there are many of us who have conflicting emotions as we sit here this morning. Uh, there are a number of people amongst our church family that are doing things tough and for whom, at the moment, these are uh, very important times uh, in life. And so I pray this morning that as we look at a passage which is full of such important news such wonderful truths, that these would not just be things that we uh, kind of understand in our minds, but that by your spirit they may hit our hearts, change the way we see things, uh, change the way we see the future, that we would know your love and the difference that makes in this ever-changing world, that we would know the future that lies ahead with confidence and assurance. So please work amongst us this morning, I pray, as we sit under your word, and I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a uh, new version of Stephen King's book, It, coming out as a movie this week. I'm not recommending it. I won't be going to see it. I think it's a bit of a horror. I don't know if it'll be any good. I don't know if it will do big business box office-wise. But one thing I do feel fairly confident in saying about it is that it will bring with it a new batch of coolrophobia. What's coolrophobia? Fear of clowns. Exactly right. Anyone suffer from it? Oh, a few. Uh, in the, in the book, and I assume the movie It, there is Pennywise, who normally takes the form of an evil clown, and uh, no doubt more fear of clowns will sweep the world as a result of this movie. Thank you, Stephen King. Now, there are evil clowns like Pennywise from It. The other one I could think of was Krusty from The Simpsons. Uh, but I believe that people are uncomfortable around clowns for more than them just being evil, because I couldn't think of any more than two evil clowns. If you can think of any more, is it raining? Wow. If you can think of any more evil clowns, come and see me uh, afterwards. But I think there's more to it as to why coolrophobia is a thing. I'm not a psychologist, as you know, but I wonder if part of the discomfort that many people have with clowns is that there's a difference between what's on the outside and what's on the inside. It's very clear that what lurks underneath the painted-on happy face and the oversized clothes and the exaggerated features is very different from what it looks like on the outside. That's why Smokey Robinson sang The Tears of a Clown. Looks happy on the outside, but underneath is pain and sadness. And I there, and I'm not trying to get too deep here, but I wonder whether many people are uncomfortable with clowns because there's actually a bit of a clown in all of us we all put on some form of makeup to the outside world so they don't know what's going on within us. We all hide in some ways our true features and what's going on. We all dress up in ways that hide our real hurts, our real feelings, our real worries and pain. 
Most of us, for much of our lives, are doing it tough, but most of us don't let on. Most of us don't reveal it. We put our best foot forward, or we put on our oversized shoes and put that forward, or we put on our red nose or flower that squirts water, and, and no one knows what's going on underneath. Well, today we're looking at a passage that has got incredible news to a broken and hurt world to a world of people that are probably different from how they're appearing in front of everyone else. Today we see truth that brings hope. We see truth that brings comfort. If you're a clown, and I think there's a bit of a clown inside all of us, here is the news, the only news, that brings hope and changes things perfectly and permanently. We're going to see, I hope you saw as we went through the reading, it's a huge reading. But there's only three things I want to bring to us from it this morning. But all of them are vital, all of them are life-changing. One, we live in a new age. Two, we follow the great king. And three, we've got an urgent message to share. Uh, If you've been with us over these last couple of weeks, you'll know we've started a new series in the book of Acts. Uh, This might sound like it's straight for Katie going off to Spain today, but it's not. We're going through the book of Acts and this is the passage we're on. And you'll know that the book of Acts is the story of how the good news of Jesus goes out. You've got the four Gospels which tell the life story of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, but it's Acts that shows how the rest of the world changes when they hear of the good news of Jesus. How this news of this one person and his life and death and resurrection changed the course of human history. That's what we're going to be seeing in the book of Acts. And today is a huge marker in this book because in chapter 1, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, before Jesus left his apostles to go back to be with God, he told his apostles, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, boom, today that's what happens. They've been waiting for this to happen before they go out and change the history of the world. Today is the day it happens. So three points. Firstly, we live in a new age. This is verses 1 to 21. We live in a new age. There are moments in history that are recorded in history books. And they're there because everything changed as a result of them. Most of history is not in history books. It's not that important. None of my life will ever be in a history book. But there are certain moments there are. Some of them are inventions. When the wheel comes in, nothing in life for humans is the same afterwards. When the gun is created, nothing in life is afterwards. With the printing press, uh, we could go on and on, high-definition TV. Some of of them, though, aren't inventions. There are other things that, that kind of change history. There are events like world wars or coronations or assassinations. If you read through those history books, I don't think you're likely to find the day of Pentecost in them. We should. This day doesn't feature in most of the books or lists of events or times that have changed the world in an incredible way. But Pentecost should be there. There's a reason that it has such significance in the Christian calendar. Now, Pentecost, for the people at that time, was a celebration, a festival that happened 50 days, that's why it's Pente, uh, 50 days after the Passover. For Christians, we remember it because it's 50 days since... Jesus died. So Jesus died, then he's raised for 40 days. He kind of is around appearing to his disciples. Then he goes up, ascends to be back with the Father. There's 10 more days and then Pentecost happens and the Spirit comes down. This is the day. And make no mistake about it, this is the dawn of a new age. This is a new era. It is that significant. Let me explain why I'm saying that Uh, because I don't want you to think this is just hyperbole. This is absolutely accurate. 
You can see it's significant if we can see the verses behind us. Verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind comes. That's not usual. What looks like tongues of fire rests on each of the people and then we're told they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking and hearing other languages. This is not what some Christians think is the gift of tongues later on in the New Testament where it's uh, thought to be angelic languages. This is earthly languages. But it's being heard or spoken by people that could not know them. That's the miracle. Uh, Verses 6 to 11 make it it clear that uh, the people came from all different regions, all the ones that Tori had to read out. Well done, Tori. Uh, And they've all got different languages. And this is an incredible scene. Try and picture it. And what's the response to it all when this happens? Verse 6, halfway through the verse, bewilderment. Verse 7, utterly amazed. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Nobody knows what's going on here. You've got the sound like the wind, the fire, you've got the languages all going on, the Holy Spirit filling and and no one understands. Some in verse 13 mock them saying they're drunk. Obviously those are the ones who don't have the Spirit so it just sounds like babble to their ears. But Peter gets up and he says, I'll explain this to you. It's not drunkenness, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, But this has got to do with the prophet Joel, he says. And Joel is a prophet in the Old Testament. We've got his prophecy in the, in the Bible. You can look it up. And so Peter says, Joel the prophet spoke about what's happening here and now amongst us. Hundreds of years ago, Joel prophesied about this day and what would happen. And so he quotes from the book of Joel in verses 17 to 21. So have a look what he says. Verse 17, Joel, hundreds of years earlier, says, In the last days... Now, I want to just pause there for a moment because sometimes Christians think that the phrase, the last days, refers to that time just immediately before Jesus comes back, as if it's a long time in the future or sometime in the future just before Jesus comes back and they're the last days. That's not how the Bible speaks of that phrase, in the last days. It refers to the time between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. In other words, it's been the last days since that day and today. It's been the last days for about 2,000 years. It's called the last days because all the major work of God has been done. Not that God isn't still active on a daily basis in the lives of the world, but all his major saving plans and purposes has been done. In other words, God became human in Jesus Jesus lived the perfect life. He died the, the, the death that you and I need. He conquered death, rose from the dead. He then ascended to be with the Father and then he sent his Spirit. And that's the last major act of God until Jesus returns. So that's why these are the last days. So Joel says, in the last days I will pour my Spirit out on all people. And he goes on to say that now all Christians will be able to prophesy. That is, to know and speak God's words, men, women, young and old. Now this will be slightly different from prophecy in the Old Testament. You you can pick that up from Hebrews 1 where it says, in the past God spoke in various ways through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. But this is genuinely prophecy, speaking God's words and truth. In the past there were very few prophets There were very few people that God used to speak through or who had visions and dreams. But now all Christians, Joel says, men and women, young and old, will have the Spirit and God will act and operate in them and through them in different ways personally. 
He then goes on to talk about some of the signs that will come before the great and glorious day of the Lord, which is when Jesus comes back. But I have to skip over that to keep the main point. I want you to see the big point of, of Joel. Peter says, today is the day Joel looked forward to. The Spirit has now come on all God's people. And what does that mean? Think about it for a moment. Because you just say, oh, the Spirit came, great. It means God is close to his people. That's a very important theme in the Scriptures. In the past, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. In fact, distance from God, the distance that people have to keep from God is one of the key themes of the Old Testament because God is holy and righteous and we as human beings are fallen and sinners and therefore a distance is necessary for our own good. There's a, a sense that we need to keep away from a holy, righteous God as fallen, sinful people. And you see that all the way through the Old Testament. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, what happens? They're kicked out of the garden and distance is made between them and God. The Israelites, you can see God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. But in the architecture of the temple and the tabernacle, it showed that people had to be distant from God. It showed it. Remember in the tabernacle and the temple there was the Holy of Holies right in the middle where God was caused to dwell? But architecturally, uh, it put barriers so that people couldn't come into God's presence. Gentiles could only go so far into the temple. But if you were a Jew, you could go a bit further. Jewish women could go a bit further, but then they were cut off and a Jewish men could go a little bit further, closer to God. Then the priests could go a little bit further. And then one person, the high priest, on one day a year could go into the Holy of Holies, but only after doing sacrifices. And distance showed a lot about the relationship between God and his people. Do you see the significance then of Pentecost? It's all changed. It's very, very different. Pentecost marks a new era, a new epoch in God's dealings with his people. Now God, by his spirit, isn't just close, but within his people, dwells within them and fills them. Every Christian, this is a promise from God, everyone who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has God himself dwell within them by his spirit. You see the incredible truth of that. It means no more distance. It means no more relational problems. That's what the distance signifies. We've got a problem with the relationship. So fixed, so sorted is the issue that God can dwell within us. It's a new age since Pentecost that you and I live in. And to our shame, we sometimes don't realise how incredible it is. I forget what an incredible privilege that God himself dwells within me. An Old Testament Jew could barely have conceived of such a thing, could not have understood really how that could be possible. And this is part of the good news that we see from this passage today. It means if you're a Christian, you are never alone, ever alone. It means if you're a Christian, you are never as weak as you may feel because you have God himself within you filling you. It means you are never as unsupported as you might think you are. It means that God by his spirit is always with you, always in you, always empowering you. Whatever you're going through now, you're not going through it alone. Whatever no one else knows about you and your struggles, the Lord does. He's with you and he will empower you as you go through it. This age is an incredible privilege and a wonderful blessing and I hope we recognize it and see it. 
So firstly, we live in a new age. The points get shorter as we go through. The third one's hardly a point. The second one, we follow the great king. We follow the great king. This is verses 22 to 36. Have a think about this for a moment. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you before. The sermon that Peter goes on, so we've had the day of Pentecost. The spirits come down. They've said, what's going on? They're all bewildered. Peter's explained it. He said, it's Joel's prophecy. The spirits come down. But Peter, in verse 22 onwards, goes on to preach a wonderful sermon. It was the long talk that Elaine had to read out. It's an amazing one, though, because think about it. The spirit has come down. This new age and new epoch that I've just described has happened. And Peter goes on to preach about what? Jesus. All the way through. He's just said what's going on is the Spirit's come down, the Spirit fulfilling uh, Joel's prophecy, but from verses 22 to 36, he talks about Jesus from beginning to end. In fact, he will speak about the Spirit towards the end of it, but only to show how great Jesus is. And I, I point this out because sometimes I challenge us as Christians... To, there's sometimes a, uh, it creeps into Christian thinking and living that uh, we should go on about the Spirit more and more. Or Christians who don't go on the spirit, about the Spirit enough aren't mature enough or are substandard spiritually. And I just point this out because the role of the Spirit in the Scriptures is to point people to Jesus. The role of the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, is to get them to trust in Jesus and become more and more like Jesus. That's what the work of the Spirit is. That's why Peter preaches. Once the Spirit's down, he preaches Jesus. It's all the way through the Scriptures, but you see it very clearly here on the day the Spirit comes down. The great day that uh, this new age comes, changing the way that God relates to people and the distance going, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, Peter preaches about Jesus. And I want you to see why that is. Have a look at what he preaches. Verse 22. He says to these Jews, you all saw Jesus do miraculous things. But then he says, you were responsible for putting him to death. Actually, verse 23 is a very important verse. And I, I just want to pause for a moment. I'll get back to the big picture in a moment. But verse 23 is important enough for, for us to pause for a moment. Because it actually says two quite different things about the one event. The event is the death of Jesus on the cross. But Peter says, why did Jesus die? He said he died because of God's set purpose and foreknowledge. In other words, this was part of the plan and purpose of God. And it's not just foreknowledge. Some people say, well, God kind of knows what's going to happen, but he's not kind of in control of it. No, no, set purpose and foreknowledge. But Peter also says it happened for another reason, because these people put him to death. In other words, the same event, Jesus' death on the cross, but Peter is able to attribute it to God and to people. What you've got here is God's sovereignty and human responsibility put together in the one verse. Now, that's if you're sitting there going, I don't get that, Jay, you will never get that. That's an impossible thing to get your mind around, but it's a truth that brings enormous comfort to Christians if you hold on to it. Because it says that human beings, as we know, as we experience, make decisions every day and take actions every day that are real and they have consequences. These men put Jesus to death. But it also says behind that we can speak of God being in charge of everything that happens. Everything that happens. It's not that we're just spinning off uncontrollably. Everything is in God's hands. And even more than that, he can use the evil in the world, even the suffering of the world, and still bring good from it. These men meant it for evil. God uses it in the cross for the best good of all. 
And that's something that we see in this verse, but you actually see it right the way through the scriptures. A few years ago, we looked at the book of Genesis and we saw Joseph and his brothers. Do you remember? Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. They're jealous of Joseph, so they sell him into slavery because they hate him. But God, we're told, used that for good, to save people. It means, when you reflect on that, none of the evil in the world that you and I experience or sometimes cause is meaningless. That's a great thought. And it means that you're never outside the sovereign hand of God. He's always in charge. If you don't believe in the Christian God, then so much of this world is awful and it has no meaning and no purpose and no merit. But the Christian understanding is that behind everything in this world, in a way that we can't possibly fathom, God still holds it in his hand and he can bring good even from evil and through suffering. Very encouraging that. Anyway, uh, Peter says, remember, you guys knew Jesus, you saw him do incredible things, but then you lost your faith. You, You thought he might be the guy, but then you thought he wasn't, so you put him to death. But then he says the resurrection changed everything. Have a look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on this guy. And then he quotes David, the Old Testament king, from a psalm where David had spoken about not being abandoned to the grave, God's holy one not seeing decay. And Peter goes on to say in verse 29, David wasn't speaking about himself in the first place in those words. He says if you go to David's tomb, I don't know if they had a signpost to David's tomb or something, but if you go to David's tomb, you will find his decayed body. David was speaking about the one from David's line, the one who would be David's uh, great ancestor, the greater David, the king the Old Testament was looking forward to and waiting for and expecting and he says that's Jesus. Jesus is the king that we've all been waiting for. Jesus is the king that all God's promises and plans were waiting for and Peter says verse 32, you can see it now. You saw it in his resurrection, he conquered death. You saw it in his ascension as he went up to be with the father and you've seen it now as he's given the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Peter's saying? All these things prove Jesus is the guy. He's the king. Who else is resurrected back from the dead, never to die again? Who else ascends visibly in the heavens to be at the right hand of God? Who else controls the spirit of God and sends him on his people? No one. Peter's saying this is the guy, Jesus. Or as verse 36 puts it, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified Lord and Christ. This is the great king. This is the one with authority and power, the one that death can't keep down, the one who's at the right hand of the Father and the one who sends his spirit on his people. He's the reason the distance between people and God can go and the spirit of God can come and dwell within us. He's the only reason that can happen. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Did God just say, oh, I might change things up a bit here? No, Jesus came and did something that changed it because so powerful is the cross, so complete is the forgiveness that comes in Jesus, so washed clean are everyone who trusts in Jesus that God himself can dwell within them. It only happens because of the great king that we follow. That's why Jesus is the subject of Peter's sermon because he's the one that's allowed all this to happen. He's the one we need to trust, need to follow, need to bow the knee to. He is the great king. Do you know him? Do you know you're known by him? It's a different 
phrasing, but it's very important that. I once knew someone who was relatively famous and I remember thinking, he knows me. The king of kings knows you by name. Everything about you. Died on the cross for you. Allowed the spirit of God to dwell within you. That's who you're known by. We live in a new age. We follow the great king. Thirdly, very quickly, we share an urgent message. This is verses 37 to 41. We're told that when the people heard Peter say this sermon, they were cut to the heart. Why? Because they suddenly realised what they'd done. And what they'd done was they'd got it wrong about God. They'd got it wrong about Jesus. They'd put him to death. And I think there's a sense that everyone who becomes a Christian later in life gets this to a point. Because when we become a Christian, we realise that for many years we've got it wrong with God. We realise that for many years we've got it wrong with Jesus. We hadn't quite seen who he was, hadn't quite put our full trust in him, bowed the knee to him, followed him in life. And that's all that being a Christian is, doing that, getting Jesus right. Peter calls it here repenting and being baptised. But that's what it is, getting it right with Jesus, recognising who he is and what he's done and living for him, joining the people of God. And Peter promises that if you do that, if you get right with Jesus, two incredible things happen. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has those two incredible blessings. You have the joy and freedom of forgiveness. Guilt is an awfully crippling thing. But with forgiveness, there's no need to pretend anymore. There's no need to feel weighed down by guilt anymore. There's no need to fear what God thinks of you anymore or where you stand. It's all gone, washed perfectly clear in forgiveness. And then we have the Holy Spirit, which takes us back to our first point and the privilege we have of having God himself dwell within us. Friends, this is the message that changed those believers' lives and that they went out into the world and turned the history of the world upside down with. And it's the same message that has changed our lives and that we are to continue to take to the world around us in the power of the Spirit today. This is the urgent message the world needs to hear. More importantly than climate change or terrorism, people need to know about forgiveness and ha having the Holy Spirit. More important than who leads the US or New Zealand, people need forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. More important than a lack of education or resources. Though all those things are important, but more important fundamentally than that is forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. This is what brings life and rest and peace and assurance. The world needs Jesus. And that is what you and I are to be rejoicing in for ourselves, but urgently sharing with the rest of the world. That's the urgent message that we take. Some of us do that full time. Some of us work to help others fund to do it. Some of us, like Katie, head over to Spain and do it over there. But we all do it in different ways because every person needs Jesus, needs this news. And it's urgent. It's not just optional. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just something that makes life more bearable or happier. It does do that, but it's more than that. It's necessary. Without it, the distance between a person and God remains. Without it, forgiveness is unattainable. Without it, we're still alone without the Spirit. But with Jesus, everything changes. This message is urgent. And so can I finish by asking you, as I've been asking myself uh, this week, 
How do you contribute to spreading it? For some of us, we need to know how... Well, for some of us, we just need to put it into practice in our lives. We haven't quite yet made that step. If that's you, make the step. Can you see that the difference that Jesus makes? It's the one difference you need. If you don't know how to do that, come and see me afterwards. We'll talk about it. But for some of us, we, might be, we, we kind of know it in our hearts, but we don't feel good at being able to verbalise it to others. Get better at working out how to put it into words. Come along to a Christianity Explored course or, or read a book that will help or we'll put something on. Some of us are very good with the words part of it, but we don't quite show it in the rest of our lives. We don't commend the gospel in the way we look after the least and the last and the lost. If that's us, maybe we need to get better at putting it into effect in our lives so that our lives adorn the good news of Jesus. For some of us, maybe we need to get back to prayer because we're actually pretty good at doing it with our words and our actions. We've forgotten you need Jesus to be able to um, uh, spread this message. We need to get driven down to our knees. There may be some here today that are going to go into this kind of ministry full-time. You may have a, a sense of a call even now. Think about what to do and pray in that way. There may be some of us who need to give money or more money to fund it uh, in different ways. But do you see the message is urgent? It's changed our lives. We want to see it change everyone else's lives. This is why we don't need to fear clowns. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? This is why, even more importantly, we don't need to fear being clowns. Because clowns kind of look good on the outside, but underneath, the fear is that there's something else. Christians are the reverse. I hope that the, the extra makeup and baggage that we put on is the struggles in life. Nothing worse than a Christian who appears as if they're totally invulnerable and nothing ever hurts them. That's awful, because everyone else thinks, wow, what's wrong with my faith? And uh, what's wrong with my Lord? And... <coughs> But I hope it's reversed. I hope the pains and the struggles and the worries and the concerns that we all go through is on the outside. But on the inside is a confidence and an assurance because we live in a new era and we follow the great king. Pentecost changed everything. I hope it means that underneath the makeup and the exaggerated features is not the tears of a clown or an evil clown, but underlying confidence an assurance that doesn't waver because we know and are known by the God who's in charge and, and who's in charge and uses even evil and suffering for his good. We know who we are under the wigs and the flowers. We know who's with us. We know where we're going. And unlike so many people in this world, we know why we're here. We know what our purpose is, sharing this urgent message of Jesus. We know whose hands our lives are in. We know where our true home is, no matter where we're living at the moment. We know the good shepherd who knows his sheep. I pray that we reverse being a clown. This was the moment the Spirit came. Ever since then, we live in a new age, following the great king, sharing the urgent message. And I pray that we will do that more and more. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths of that first Pentecost. I pray that we may rejoice in them this day and live in the light of them. And if there's any changes that we need to make in life, please help us know what we need to do, how we can do it. Father, thank you for your Son and your Spirit that has changed everything. Amen.